This is part four of studies in Nehemiah. We're going to do 100 parts. No, I'm just kidding. This is going to be the second to last, so we'll do part five next time. And then I think we'll end at part five. But tonight is part four. Studies in Nehemiah, part four, covenant and commitment, chapters 10 to 11. I'm going to pray. Lord, we look to you tonight. And we simply pray as your sons and your daughters, we know that we are greatly loved and delighted in, not because of any talents or not because of any performance, but simply because we're your sons and your daughters. Lord, no matter how well or not well we behaved today or this week, your great love is affixed upon us and you look at us with a smile and with delight. You know all things, you know how the story ends, you see us differently than we see ourselves, and for that we're grateful that the holy God who is the creator of the ends of the universe, who knit us together in our mother's womb, likes us and enjoys the relationship, though we're very weak at times, you enjoy the relationship with us, and we are grateful tonight. And we pray that by the Holy Spirit you would open your word and teach us and move us closer to this man, Christ Jesus. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Help us to grow tonight and to leave this place a little more like Jesus and maybe even a lot more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So let's uh, do a quick recap here of chapters 1 through 9. I have introductory comments there. I'm just going to let those be on the notes. Very quickly, an incredible story is Nehemiah's life. Chapter 1, we've gone through this many times, Nehemiah prays. He hears about the condition of the people in Jerusalem, and it's his people, and he wants to go back and help. So he starts with prayer. Chapter 2, he asks for permission from the king because he serves, he kind of is a direct report of the king, King Artaxerxes I. And the king says, you can go and I'm going to make you governor and you have authority to do what is on your heart. Then he, in chapter 3, gets all the families to join together to rebuild the wall, which was important for safety. They actually finish... um, the wall very quickly, but that's actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. So they start building, and then all these threats and warfare and oppression on the outside and on the inside kind of breaks open. They press through it, though, and then by chapter 5, the wall is finished. I lied again. By chapter 5, it's not finished, but by the end of chapter 5, it is. But there was some oppression there. Uh, the, the chapter 4 was the threats from enemies, and chapter 5 was kind of the internal drama that happens among God's people still to this day. And he was a good leader, so he navigated all that. And then chapter 6, we see the wall is complete. Then chapter 7, he counts everybody. And everybody's kind of, you know, thinking, wow, it's great we're back in the land, but no one knew that they were about to get hit by one of the greatest revivals in world history. Not just biblical history, the, 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 the whole existence of humanity, this is one of the most significant revivals ever. 
And they rediscover many things in chapter 8. One of them is they recommit to the Word of God. When I talk about revival, I usually teach Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the New Testament revival that's worth studying, and the rest of Acts basically. But Nehemiah chapters 7, 8, 9, the whole book really, is, is the most, probably most significant revival in the history of Israel. And they uh, just get encountered by God in such a dramatic way. And by chapter 9, there is a 50,000-person gathering. Every person in the entire nation that had returned is now meeting daily, listening to the Bible one-fourth of the day and confessing and worshiping one-fourth of the day. And so they'd have these 12-hour sessions. I mean, imagine a conference 12 hours a day for like a week and loving it. And so they're confessing their sin, they're repenting, they're joyful, they're worshiping, they're praying, they're remembering, oh my goodness, like there's this thing called the law. We have to recommit to that. And so it kind of dawns on them that they have this covenant that they'd forsaken, and that's why they were in Babylon, which became Persia. Now they're back by the mercy of God, according to the prophecy in Jeremiah 29. That was a whole blitz of a recap, but now we're in chapter 10, and that's the content of tonight's um, teaching. If you want to go deeper on those things, it's all on the website. Just uh, the first couple sessions cover all those in more detail. But in chapter 10, what we have happening is after the revival... After hearing the words of Moses, after recognizing we need to live this stuff, there is a solemn recommitment to God's Word. And I want to kind of share it this way. You know, God's idea of revival is not some kind of Christian entertainment for us. It's not like, well, you don't have the world, so I'll do revival so it's fun every once in a while. It is completely not like that, although that's how it's kind of viewed. We need revival because we're bored and we want to be excited again. The real purpose of revival is so that God's people solemnly recommit to obey God's word. That's really why he stirs our affections and he causes us to remember it is so good to follow the Lord and to follow his word. That's... That's why we do it. And so what the people do is they, they realize, now in their day, what they're recommitting to is the law of Moses. That was the, that was the first covenant, I mean the old covenant or Old Testament, that the people of God related to was Moses' covenant that he gave them, the first five books of the Bible in essence. And so they're recommitting to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they're saying, we will do this. And we understand that if we don't, there's consequences. We're, we're remembering that and we're committing to that. And they actually make a seal. They, they seal this document, all the leaders, all the priests, all the Levites, and everybody that could. They made like a some kind of uh, document and put their seal on it saying, as for me and my family, we commit to do the Bible in essence. And so that is kind of the long and short 
of what chapter 10 is about. Now, here's the thing. When they were recommitting to Moses' law, there were very specific things that they were committing to, and they actually branched, or, or they they kind of narrowed down into, into some very uh, specific commandments that had implications on their way of life. But the three main ones that were told in chapter 10 that they stressed or emphasized highly were related to marriage, Sabbath, and tithing. Marriage, Sabbath, and tithing. So they're kind of like, Lord, we're back in. We're going to do, you know, in our language, we're going to follow the Bible again. Because they were, in essence, the prodigal son who had squandered their life. Now they're coming back to the father saying, Father, whatever you want us to do. And they knew that meant following the word of God. And I can't stress this enough. The word of God is central to the Christian faith. And I said this last week, and I'll keep saying it as long as I'm on this teaching, but anyone that tries to devalue the role and importance of the Word of God, the 66 books of the Bible, you really need to consider throwing out that teaching and going with the Bible. If you throw out the Bible, we don't have the Christian faith. We just have whatever we think. And so the the life that we live in Christ as New Testament believers has an ultimate authority, which is the Word of God. Even God says, I will constrain myself to what I've spoken, and I will do that. So there's really no parameter if you start throwing out Bible, and many are today. But my heart in this series is to say, no, we, we flourish only if we're, we're radically committed to believing and following this book. What's interesting is what people say is, well, I don't want to be a legalist. So I don't, I'm not really into like study the Bible. When the reality is, is that the Bible leads us to faith and to freedom. The legalist doesn't want to be like all, you know, I don't want to be bogged down. But it's actually in the, the scriptures tell us that truth sets us free. And if we don't know the truth, we don't have the freedom. And I get what, you know, the person saying, I don't want to be a legalist. I don't want to be a Pharisee. But it's not that we throw out the Bible. We, we live the Bible rightly. It's so important to get that. So some people, I get it. They're, they're tired of being Bible thumped and mistreated and all these things. But it's actually go deeper into the word and believe it as God meant it to be believed. And you'll be free and you'll be full of faith. Paul taught us. That faith comes by the word of God. Jesus taught, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So we can't just throw out truth. We can't throw out Bible. And this is what happened. The people of God rediscovering, this is significant. We must obey it. The three main issues that they had to strenuously uh, reclaim. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but they, 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 they really emphasized these three areas was in the, in the area of marriage, Sabbath, and tithing. And I, and I want to kind of share this as it was understood historically, but then clearly I want us to understand that there's a New Testament understanding that was different than what they followed. So in, in Nehemiah 10, there was a law in Moses' law. You could not marry someone from a different uh, a foreign person. You could not. 
And many of the Israelites just were like, I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want. I mean, it was, they were no different than us. And so they intermarried with people from all different areas. And what happened is it caused them to compromise because the people who were from different areas had different gods. That, that was just the landscape back then. You went over to that land and married that person. You had to take their gods with you. And so you had, you had Israelites, you had Jewish people who were supposed to be dedicated to Yahweh, God, who were worshiping other gods. And so they actually recommit. We will only give our sons and our daughters to Jewish people. And we will navigate, okay, so there's people already here that are from other nations that are married. They had to navigate that, which is very intense. And so what it would be like today, in a way, would be God saying, you, you as a believer must marry a believer. It, it, that's kind of the New Testament way of looking at what they faced, was don't intermarry with someone that's going to force you to worship in a different way other than Christianity. And so that was kind of the, you know, that's the way they saw it, that's kind of the way we would see it in the New Testament. The New Testament gives us much liberty in marriage, but we must marry within the faith. And, and in the New Testament, it's regardless of, of ethnicity. I believe God delights in interracial marriage as long as two believers marry each other. Uh, I think it's beautiful when black and white or black and brown or white and brown, I, I just think it's such a beautiful thing. I have close friends that are different nationalities married and and so I just think the Lord delights in it but his heart really is get married to someone who you could be equally yoked with so you can glorify God together and raise a godly family I think I think that's the the heart in that let's go down to Sabbath I'll talk more about that let's go down to Sabbath they recommit to a Sabbath which ultimately is about devotion they said, we will close the gates. We will cease doing some certain businesses when it's the Sabbath day. That's in Nehemiah 10.31. Again, I'm not going to expound on this lengthily, but they made that commitment. And the way we would think of it is we take time every week to shut her down for a little bit and have time with God. You know, a little bit of time every day and maybe a good chunk on a Sunday or a Monday or however you let it happen. But we should, once a week, just, just dial it down so you can have time with God. A little extra time with God, family time, where you just put aside work. We live in such a work-driven culture, even our days off are like, well, I've got to get a bunch of stuff done. No, dial it back for part of a day. And uh, I will kind of share a little bit more about this, but the New Testament does not require us to strictly obey the Sabbath. Back then, it was very serious. I mean, the, the Israelites recommitted in a serious way to the Sabbath. As New Testament Christians, you know, we're, giving, we're, we're given liberty to, okay, if you want to do that, cool. If not, cool, pretty much. But I would recommend honor the spirit of the Sabbath, which is recognize we have a need to dial back and connect with God regularly. And so I tell people, get holy time with God every day, and then every once in a while, get kind of a bigger chunk. Most people call their Sunday their Sabbath day. 
Um, and here's just an idea. Try to get as much done on Saturday so you can just dial back, have some extra quiet time on Sunday. And then watch your show at night and then do your work week. <laughs> and I get it. It's so hard with family and jobs and everything. It's just so hard. I think the point is to really make an effort because when we make an effort, we, we have more time with God. And my personal conviction on Sabbath, I believe biblically it's not a vacation. And I don't believe biblically it's just watch your favorite show. I honestly believe God's heart is to have time with him. That's keep holy the Sabbath is, is pull back on duties so you can be in a place of devotion. Some people kind of cross it out and write vacation in there or like play day. And that's fine. Like have that every once in a while. But the reality is biblically the Sabbath is a rest in God's presence or a rest with him. And so I, I just think people get so weird with it. It's like, no, I'm pretty sure Sabbath didn't mean go golfing. It, it, but you can. It's not against the law. I just, God's heart is, no, pull back from everything and just get alone and get connected to God regularly so you don't lose that, that vital connection. Then we go to tithing. So they recommit to marriage, they recommit to Sabbath, and they recommit to tithing. And uh, because obviously when you're not following the Lord, what's the first thing to go is, is your giving. And uh, so the people had totally slacked in their giving. They recommit to all kinds of different tithes and offerings and had implications with their feasts and what they gave to the, the priests and the Levites. So they recommit to that. And what's interesting, the last verse of chapter 10 because it says a little bit about marriage, a little bit about Sabbath, and then the whole rest of the chapter is about tithing and offering and how they will support the priests and the Levites. And the very last verse says, so that the house of God would not be neglected. So that the house of God would not be neglected. Because what was happening is because the people were backslidden, there wasn't as much resource for the priests and the Levites to keep their duties going because they were dependent on what the people gave. And so there was this whole cycle of things impacting other things. And so when they recommit to doing the marriage the right way and Sabbath the right way and tithing the right way, then a, actually a worship culture could thrive in uh, Jerusalem, which it's all about so that the people would have a thriving worship culture. It wasn't ultimately about, God, I need your $10. It wasn't ultimately about, you need to just stop doing... The ultimate purpose of all of it was kind of to get their hearts softened so that, that God would be number one in their life. Now, let's make this a little more personal because I'm trying to go through this teaching and give you what it says and what it means and then what it would apply to us. So let's make it personal. Uh, marriage, obviously, is a sacred covenant. And as New Testament Christians, we recognize the Bible says that marriage is between one man and one woman for one life for the purposes of glorifying God. That is what the Bible says, and that's what we have to, as is, is, is unpopular as it is, as politically incorrect as it is, the Bible is very clear that marriage is a very sacred covenant and that it is only it's reserved only for one man and one woman and i would urge you to take a hard stand on that 
and be very dogmatic and, and don't let people back you down on like, well, you're intolerant. There's, you know, a tree could marry a mushroom and that should be okay. It's like people are getting so nuts today. No, we, we believe the Bible and it's very clear that God's intention from the beginning, even from Genesis, is that one man and one woman would be in relationship to walk with God together and to raise up godly offspring who would then walk with God. And so don't... Don't kind of fudge on this. This truth is very sacred to the Lord. And it's ultimately a picture of Christ in the church. So it's, uh, it's important to get that one right. And so uh, we, we as Christians today, we have to uphold the sanctity and the seriousness of the marriage covenant and, uh, and promote what the Bible teaches on it. So that's my question on that one is where are you at on that truth? And if you're like, I don't know about that, I, don't believe me. Go to the Word and let the Spirit convince you of what, of what is His wisdom. Um, as, it, as it regards the Sabbath or devotion is what I'm calling that, uh, devotion to Jesus is central to our Christian faith. The heart of the Sabbath was so that the people of God would have time with Him and reconnect to Him regularly, at least once a week. That was kind of the bare minimum, though. And what's interesting is the fact that God has to command us to be near Him shows you how fickle our hearts are. Because you'd think, like, wow, God, you're, you're God, and we'll just, we should worship you. But even that was not a given. So God even had to say, I command you, you have to pull back from your duties and be with me and worship me once a week at least because he knew it would be good for us. And so how is your time with him going? And is it a priority in your life? Do you, do you spend some time with him in the morning or the evening? Do you have that, that Sabbath break, so to speak? Do, are there chunks in your schedule where you just pull back and put him first? It's okay to just clear the schedule and, and turn everything off and not even have an agenda and just be with him for an hour or two. Um, I knew a guy um, a while back who, who his kind of his Sabbath, I think it was every Friday night, he just had a, he had a, clear, a clearing in his schedule and he would just take Friday nights to just seek God. And, and it would be in those times where he'd get radically encountered and he'd get prophetic words and he'd be able to encourage people. But his life was so busy, he just had Friday night scheduled off and that was his Sabbath. And so don't get real religious about it. Just say, Lord, where are places in my schedule where I could just, you know, put you first and be with you? And then giving. How are you doing on your giving? These are the three main issues when they re-covenanted with the law of Moses, but it coincides with commitments we need to make related to marriage, devotion, and then ultimately giving. Giving, is a, uh, giving our money back to God is a blessing. It's, it's uh, you know, everything we have is given by God. It's a stewardship. And how are we doing with that? Are we being a little stingy? Are we kind of counting pennies or are we generously giving back to God by means of the church or uh, your favorite ministry or giving to the poor, etc.? Are you generously giving back to the Lord? I love when people argue with me about tithing. Well, the, the New Testament doesn't really talk a lot about tithing. You're right. It talks a lot about generosity, which is more intense. 
How are you doing on generosity? Would God describe you as generous? And, and you and him, you know, I hate talking about money because people think I'm going to give an offering or something. People called me to give radically when I was 18, 19 years old. And so Mandy and I just have, when we have lots of money or little money, we have decided to give radically, well beyond our means for the last 20 years. And we've seen God honor it. We've seen God come through. If you have no money and you're in debt, give your way out of debt. Give generously out of debt. I mean, we've seen surplus. We've seen nothing. And we just keep giving and God keeps honoring. And so just get in the habit of of letting God have your money. It either, you know, it, it's, it, it, it either has us or we have it kind of thing. And, and the way, you, you know, you get that love of money out of you is you just give it away generously. And the more you give, the more it can sometimes be like, ah, that was a house payment or a car payment. But eventually the joy comes there and you just get used to it. So let's, uh, let's be generous but how are you doing in that area? You don't have to answer, but if the Lord came to you tonight and started talking to you about your money, how would it go? <laughs> oh, the one thing that no one wants to hear about in church. Don't talk about money. Oh, man, it's such an idol. It's crazy. But I tell you what, there's no freedom like having a clear conscience in your finances. I don't mean perfect. Like, I don't, I don't mean you have like some, I just mean you're free from it. You can, you can have it or you can give it away. And it's not this big thing like, oh my goodness, I got to go buy a fifth house. Like, it's not, like, I, I just don't think it's so free to just have this relationship where money is this little thing in your life that you just keep giving away. And I would, uh, you know, I've got a lot of friends who are wealthy, a lot of friends who make tons of money, and this is a really slippery slope. And I've seen it take people out, but it's also, I've seen it stewarded well, and so you just have to be really honest with you. You really, at the end of the day, know what's going on in your heart, and just don't let it get you and control your life. Jesus was clear, either you're going to worship God or you're going to worship money. And uh, I would never want to preach guilt about money to anyone because there are billionaires that are called to be billionaires and fund the kingdom. And there are millionaires called to be millionaires and fund the kingdom. And then there's people like me and Mandy <laughs> who, who the little we have, we, we steward the little we have. But you know, there are billionaires who are walking in generosity, and then there are people who are poor who are stingy. So it's not necessarily what kind of money you have, but just your heart attitude toward it. Uh, just be honest with God about it and let him get a hold of you. Some people, uh, I would say a good place to start is 10%. Others, you make millions, start with 50%. Um, but I, I don't know where you're at in this room, but just talk to the Lord about that. And then we'll do an offering at the end of the... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's move on from the money because too much, too much... The heat was turned up there. You know what? I, I want people to make money. I just don't want people to be bound by it. I want people to have a great life. But, but here's the thing. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. And so we just want to be radical givers. We want to be radically given. And here's the thing, because ultimately it's a picture of the gospel. 
When God wanted to show us how much He loved the world, He didn't just throw a bunch of billions of dollars at us. He, he gave us His Son. That is the ultimate. I mean, he, he could have just showered money all over the earth and be like, I love you. And no, He gives the ultimate, priceless, you know, multi-trillion dollar to the trillionth power gift is His Son. And so it's just, uh, it's inconceivable. Okay, let's move on from chapter 10. We're just going to do one more chapter here, chapter 11. Real quickly here. Thanks for bearing with me. Chapter 11, they repopulate Jerusalem. So they seal the covenant, and then they realize there's not enough people living in Jerusalem. Everybody's living out in urban areas. I'm sorry, rural areas. And they want people to move back to the city to repopulate Jerusalem. And so they they take lots and they draw one out of ten was asked, hey, can you take your family and move it closer to the city so that Jerusalem has more people, is stronger, economic things work, etc., etc. I mean, it'd be like if literally everybody lived outside of Peoria and they all lived in Princeville, Dunlap, and there was just nobody in Peoria. It wouldn't work. And so they're literally rebuilding a city. And so they do kind of an interesting lottery. They, they pick people to move in, and the people willingly. It wasn't like begrudgingly, like, ah, i got to move out of Princeville to downtown Peoria. Great. They willingly say, no, that's, that's, that'd be great. That's the Lord. You know, that's God's call in my life. Let's do that. And so there was a reshuffling of families, and, they, and that's, that's pretty much chapter 11. It's, you know, it's one of those chapters where they just kind of say, Mattathiah, the son of the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, you know, one of those chapters where it's just counting people and numbers, the whole thing. But that's the gist of it. But here's how I want to make this personal. Are you willing to go anywhere God wants you to go? If he calls your number and says, you're moving. I need you to move back to here to there. Are you willing? Are you willing? Are you mobile? Or is that off limits? Can God, can God tell you where to go or not? You know, we sing the song, where you go, I'll go. You know, and then, but don't tell me to move into a different city. Or a different country. Are you willing to go anywhere God wants you to go? Even if it means back home. You know, what's funny is we live in this push toward be radical, go to another country. And so we got so many people who are so willing to serve the Lord in another country, but not at home. I can't tell you this is this is real. You know, if God calls you to another country, are you willing to go? But if God calls you to stay home, are you willing to stay home? We have this idealized version of what's radical. Radical is like being over there, but not here. When actually radical is doing the will of God. Amen. And if God says stay here, that's radical. If God says go 500,000 miles over there, which would be around the world a couple times, <laughs> then go there. But don't think that it's more special to be in another country if God hasn't called you there. And don't think it's not the will of God to be here if God hasn't called you elsewhere. 
I love the story in Mark 5, 18 to 20, because Jesus addressed this many times. In fact, most of the New Testament, God tells people, stay home until the breakthrough comes. Jesus uh, delivered the man who had that demon. You remember the guy who had the, he was demon-possessed and he was cutting himself and all that, and Jesus just delivers him. And the guy's so delivered, he says, Jesus, I want to go with you. Take me with you. I'll go wherever you want me to go. And, he, and Jesus says, that's great. Go home and preach the gospel. Mark 5, 18 to 20. Literally, says, he says, bro, that's great. Go home and preach the gospel. I just love it. The guy, he's like every kid in this generation. I'll go anywhere, Jesus. I'll sing the songs. I'll just, wherever you want me to go. And Jesus says, that's great. Go home and reach your hometown. Go home and tell them all the things that I've done in your life. Go home and tell your wife and your kids, dad's home. Go home to your old friends. Go home to your extended family. Do the dishes. Serve them. Maybe they'll think I'm real. So many want to go to another country, but they won't go home. And I I think there's something to be said about that. But are you willing to go anywhere? Sometimes it is another country. And many times Jesus says, I love your heart. I love that you want to come with me. Go do it at home. And people will know if it's real. Guys, I'm not anti-missionary. We send missionaries out of here every year, many. We support many missionaries. It is a genuine calling. It's also a genuine calling to be a missionary right in your hometown. To be missional at your workplace. To be missional in your family. And not even announce that you're being missional. Just being real. Just being you and being like Christ in, in that place that God planted you. Because many people are like, oh, one day call me, Lord, to this place. And the Lord's like, I called you today at your workplace. Serve, be humble, do your thing, show off Jesus. Always remember that the most spiritual place in the world is in the will of God. The best place to be is in obedience. The will of God, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. I'm about to preach for a minute here. <laughs> it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God. What's the will of God for my life? It says it right here. This is the will of God that you would move to another country. Nope. That you would get your PhD. Nope. That you would be certified. Nope. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, let me, let me explain this. This is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for your life is not ultimately a location, a destination, a certification, or an education. It is sanctification. God's will for your life ultimately is to become like Jesus. You can do that in any country, in any school, in any job in the world. And if you do it right, here's what happens. If you fully commit, God, right where I'm at, make me like Jesus. If you do that and you keep doing that, if he wants you to go somewhere else, he'll do it. He'll make it real clear. So many people are chasing words and this thing over there. I got to connect with that ministry and they're, they're in this dizzying thing and they don't realize that Jesus is trying to make them like Jesus in their real life right now, right here in their current job, current family. And that is radical. 
I can't tell you how many people, I just want to go here and do this. And, blah, blah, blah. and meanwhile, they don't let God get a deep place in their heart. They're not surrendered. The will of God is ultimately sanctification. Don't believe me? Read it right there in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 Before you worry about another location, some further education, more certification. By the way, I'm not against it. If the Lord hasn't forbidden it, by all means, go for it. But never forget that you becoming like Jesus is most important. And so be willing to follow Jesus anywhere, including at home, among your family, and your old friends, where they remind you, oh, you used to be this little whippersnapper kid. Oh, my goodness. Like all of that. It's funny. It's harder to be like Jesus with those people. Oh, Derek, you're trying to be a preacher at the house of prayer. What are you doing, you silly kid? You know, like when you're at home, in fact, Jesus said it in two different gospels. If you're truly a prophet, Matthew 13, 57 and Mark 6, 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. In other words, anywhere a prophet goes, he'll be honored. Not at home. Why not at home? Because everybody's familiar with him. Jesus was the greatest prophet to ever walk the earth, and people at home couldn't believe. Like, this is Mary and Joseph's kid. We saw him grow up. We saw him fall over and scrape his knee all the time. I mean, you're telling me this is the Messiah, the Son of God? Like, there's, un- there's no way. But everywhere else he went, signs and wonders. It's interesting. I say all that to say, you know, if, if we live it fully here, there's a unique element of humility involved. If ministering in your hometown is what I'm saying, is that no one really buys into what you're kind of saying. Your family, your friends, it's just kind of like, yeah, bro. <laughs> and th- this is honestly why I feel like people itinerate Instead of just stay home. People get lost in the world of itinerant ministry. Because everywhere they go, they're the name on the billboard. They're the name on the church bulletin. They speak. People all over their words. And then that that guy or gal has to go home and they're just normal again. I, I get it. Be willing to follow Jesus anywhere. Follow him at home. Follow him with, uh, in front of your spouse, in front of your kids, and at your workplace, and at your school. And be okay with being nobody. It, maybe nobody really is like, wow, you're like a prophet. No one may know that. But don't worry about that. You are serving Jesus. If you're doing it here, it's radical. If God's called you to this area... Then you serving him here, that's radical. It's just as special as you going anywhere else. Amen. So they sealed the covenant. They talked about marriage, Sabbath, and tithing. And then they repopulated Jerusalem. Some families moved around. Some of you, God's going to call you to move. Others, he's going to tell you to stay home. They're not more special than each other. You might have this job, you might have that job. 
do whatever the Lord tells you to do. Be willing to do whatever He tells you to do, wherever He takes you, but never forget that being home is radical. That's how Jesus did it. And it's how He's calling a lot of His people. Now, He calls some to be involved in epicenters of revival. Now, I think right now, there's so many places on the earth where it would be like, ooh, it would be cool to move there for a season and just kind of cross-pollinate and get that. And that's valid. But it's also valid for God to call you kind of into the rural area and not be in an epicenter and just be faithful and kind of drink from that stream and that stream, but just be faithful to cultivate what God's called you to in this area. And you just never know. Maybe God will cause central Illinois to be an epicenter one day. Who knows? Ultimately, just have it all on the table. Lord, I'll go anywhere. I'll give any amount of money. I'll do anything. Whether you say go, whether you say stay, whether you say give it all, half, 10%, whatever. I want to be radical. I ultimately, that's my desire, is that it would all be laid out there. And that was kind of the spirit of what they were recommitting to. We're recommitting to the Word of God. We're recommitting to total obedience. Would you help us? Would you give us definition? And maybe, here's the thing, maybe in your life, maybe there's some things you're wrestling with. Maybe you have one or two or three things. I don't know if I can give that to the Lord. I mean, I see it's in the Bible, but I would urge you as a brother, I would encourage you, write that on your journal have a conversation about it and just let him talk to you. Let him talk to you about the benefits of surrendering that completely. You just never know what's around the corner when that's fully surrendered. I always think of the guy, the rich young ruler, who remembers the story of the rich young ruler. He was rich, he was young, and he had political rulership. He, was, he had everything going. He goes up to Jesus and he's like, Lord, I want to be radical for you. And Jesus, I mean, I kind of put this in the DKV, Derek Kissner version. Lord, how do I inherit eternal life? What do I got to do? And Jesus says, you know, do you, you know, do these things, you know, don't, don't do this, don't do that, do this. And amen. So you're the one guy here. (laughs) And the guy's like, I've done all that my whole life. I'm good. And then Jesus says, there's just one other area. How many know the big cannonball was coming right there? The money. Come on. Now you're a prophet. You're preaching the message before I'm preaching it. Now here's the thing. Not everybody's issue is money. But Jesus knows the one area. And we all have the one area, right? And some of it is really we haven't given it to the Lord. And others we just kind of struggle. And we're at different places. What's the one area? Because the rich young ruler, he basically was like, I'm all in except that area. What the Israelites were doing was saying, we're all in no matter what. And that really is the issue of our life. I'm all in. And so Jesus brings up all he he says, all you got to do is give away everything and sell it. I mean, imagine if the Lord walked up to you and said that. Oh, you want to follow me? Great. All you got to do is sell every last one of your possessions and give it to the poor. Come follow me. I mean, imagine that's you. I mean, I don't know how I'd react. I, I mean, I'd hopefully be like, yes, it's all I've got to do. But it says he went away sad. 
because he had such great wealth. He couldn't do it. He couldn't go from where he was at to radical. It was just one area. And there's one area that kind of gets us all. For many, it's money. For others, maybe it's related to sexuality and marriage relationships. For others, uh, there's no time for the Lord in the schedule. I'd say these three do a really good job of kind of hitting at there's usually those three are kind of, I don't know, Lord, I mean, I'll give you a tithe and I'll go to church, but don't talk to me about my relationships. I like to do my thing. You know, so talk to the Lord, ask Him, and ultimately God's in this. God gives us commands for our own freedom and benefit. The more I surrender my uh, sexuality or my marriage or my time with the Lord or my money, the more free I get. You know, God's into pleasure. He wants us to experience freedom. He wants us to experience joy and peace and love. He wants us to experience these things. And so he details paths there in his word. Amen. I'm going to end there. Amen. Amen. Oh, it's just getting good. (laughs) Well, thank you. You're welcome. And... uh, I always like to end with a little bit of Q&A. If there's anything I can clarify, any questions, any thoughts, anything where you're like, I don't even know if that's in the Bible, show me that. I'd love to take a minute. My question is, I hear this a lot, uh, you know, I hear people say this, give it to the Lord. How exactly do you do that? Like, I can confess that all day to the Lord. Okay. And I know, and I know your honors was in your heart. Uh-huh. So... So if I'm confessing this, so that means it's not in my heart, right? That I don't want to get rid of it. Give me an example. A, a theoretical. What are you talking about? I'm talking about... Like, like a burden on your heart kind of thing? Like, like, like you said, like people can struggle with certain, certain aspects of their life. Okay. Some might struggle with drugs. Some may struggle with that. Okay. Some talking about strongholds and stuff. Because I'm always confessing my sin. I'm always... Trying my best to fight against it. Amen. And I'm like, and I'm like, well, everybody's saying that's that's die, die to it, but it's like, and I keep telling me that's not as easy as one, two, three to die to right. things. And you know, so my thing is like, how 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 do you die to something productively? It's like for the longest, I feel like I've been alone. keep doing what you're doing. You keep honestly because some of those major things that plague us. Um, like, let's say for me, I struggle with like, I'll say mean things to Mandy or the kids sometimes that thing's dying a slow death, but I'm interested in it dying. And so I repent when I do that, I confess it. I talk to people about it. And every time I do, I kill that thing. And so some things, they're just going to be a war to the end, Curtis. Others, you know, you're going to get a total breakthrough. Um, some might have, you know, greed issues. So you keep giving, you keep asking, Lord, help me to use money rightly. You just, you just keep obeying in, in that area. And, you know, so you, you, you confess it, you respond in the right way. Is that helping? Okay. I hope I... So, it, it, whatever, I mean, it could be a, a hundred different things, but you just don't quit on that area. You keep 
you know, um, maybe it's lustful thoughts. You know, that's something that when I was 18 was super intense. It's never going to go away my whole life. I'm going to have to battle lustful thoughts probably till I die. No, for many it gets way worse. Because, and that's, there's a whole story there I could get into, but here's the reality. There are some things you're just going to battle forever. But I, so here's the thing. When I was 18, I was totally consumed by lust. Now that I'm 38, I've battled it for 20 years, and I have, there's more of a control there. And so I have many victories, more victories in that area because I've just stuck with it. And there's been setbacks, and then there's been victories. And so, you know, it's not like you're ever going to be perfect one day, Curtis. I mean, when Jesus comes back and you get a glorified body, then you are. But on this earth, in this age, you're going to wrestle with things. And, uh, uh, you know, we, God doesn't want us to live in a, like a license to sin. But, but here's the difference between an, a believer and an unbeliever. An unbeliever loves sin. A believer is bothered by that thing that they used to love. And that's the difference. And so you're bothered by it, and you're like, ugh, I shouldn't, and I don't, and I want to get... You just keep praying. And here's the thing. As an 18-year-old guy, I was convinced there's no possible way I'm getting free of lust, ever. I'm just so, so in bondage to it. And here's the thing. That's a lie from the devil. He's a liar, and he's always been a liar. He knows that there's grace for every sin. And that you can get freedom, and you will get it. Stick with it, my man. Well, there's another sermon. (laughs) There's grace for it, man. You know, Paul the Apostle and John the Apostle and Peter, they didn't end their life like perfect. They weren't like perfect angels at the last day of their life. They just knew how to war against these areas and how to wrestle. And they matured greatly because they stayed in the battle. So just stay in the battle, my friend. You know, it's just like... Because here's the thing, Curtis. When you quit, it gets ten times worse. I know. That's the thing. If you stay in the battle, you stay at a certain level. If you quit, the warfare just explodes. And that's what the enemy lies about. Oh, if you just quit, give yourself fully to that, it'll be so much easier. And then he ruins your life. And what are healthy outlets? Because like, the first thing I do is when I start battling with lust yeah. or anything, I turn on worship music and I seek after God and then... I always tell people, what did Jesus do when he was tempted? He quoted scripture. He went to the Bible. So you go to the scriptures specifically related to that temptation, and you quote the opposite. It is written right here that I'm called to holiness. It is written, sanctification, that I would abstain from immorality. I quote 1 Thessalonians 4.3, which is why it's one of my favorite verses. I've quoted it so many times in so many battles. And then four verses down, verse 7 and 8, I'm called to cleanness, not uncleanness. And I've battled probably thousands of times, Curtis. And so it just becomes so meaningful to me. And here's the thing. There's no perfection in that area, but I've, I've gotten further ahead. And, bro, a few years go by of you warring and battling in that area, confessing it. But again, you've got you to gotta go to the Word. You can't just muster up holiness. You've got to see it, pray into it, agree with it, talk to the Lord about it, and it grows in you a little bit. Make sense? Yeah. And, and this is, I also like to say, every time we choose obedience, it gets harder to choose disobedience the next time. So if I have a history where I'm like, I'm going to cast down that thought, I'm going to cast down that thought, I'm not going to look there, I'm going to do this, 
The more we obey, we're like getting ripped for obedience. It's like the curls and the squats. And so it's just harder to, to just totally trash our life. It, it, so does that make sense? Yeah. I used to be terrified that I would just randomly one day just make some horrible decision. And like, you know, I, I used to think of sin as like I could at any time just, you know, uh, I don't know, do something horrible, but, but the, the more likely scenario is, is that I, I compromise a lot over time into that. You know what I mean? It's really difficult to obey, 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 and then huge, you know, the likelihood of you obeying is higher if we're just consistently obeying in that area. And if we don't, again, we, get, we talk to the Lord about it, we, we confess it to a brother, and we war against it. And that really delights God's heart, Curtis. So, other thoughts, questions, anything on the sermon or other? Mandy, you look like you got something you want to just stump me with. I tell you, get that phone out and the kids are angels. It's kind of spooky, but we need it. We need it. Michelle, anything or? Oh. It's, it's, during this fasting that I did for 21 days, mm-hmm. I got so much more done resting in God. Wow. I mean, there was such breakthrough. Come on. And I don't think I've ever experienced peace like I have recently. Wow. Like, it's a supernatural schedule. I mean, like, I was listening to YouTube while I was organizing closets. So I still listened to God's word, and then I just took time in my war room and wasn't like. That is a word. Battling. Wow, that is such a truth. So you pretty much had this 21-day God, God season. And it's like when we seek God first like that in an intense way, we're thinking in the natural, oh, I'm going to have all the stuff i got to do. But then God starts to win some battles and things shift. And it actually works in our favor. And more gets done. And so there is something to be said about that. Praise God for, he's good. Andrew, you got anything, man? Good? David, Hannah, questions? Okay. All right. Well, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make it real to us, God. Lord, we've looked into the book of Nehemiah, and I just pray that it would help us to live for Jesus in this hour in this uh, generation in our specific lives and context Lord let this truth that I've shared and the things that you would speak individually Lord let them uh, just let them give grace and inspiration tonight Lord I pray for those who will hear this recording or see this on Facebook Lord I'm asking that you would encounter them Lord we want to be a people who are committed to your word Committing to or committed to obeying you, not in a religious way, but in a a, a a way that is motivated by love, God. So help us. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus. I ask you, Lord, that we would be willing to go anywhere, do anything, even if it means going back home, 
Even if it means ministering or working in a place, we've never thought, I, I don't know if I would ever do that, Lord. Let there be nothing where we say, I won't do that. Help us, God, in the area of our marriage and how we view marriage and Sabbath and giving or tithing, Father. We pray that the issue of money and our sexuality and our time and devotion would be fully under your surrender, God. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Brother David, will you close us out in a song tonight, man? We're just going to go out worshiping tonight. And uh, let's just uh, finish these last few moments. We'll just finish focused on him. Amen, amen.